theological hero of mine who has become a friend, um, has, uh, he's free agent right now. Um, so the draft is coming up. I went before they, he got drafted to, to give him a chance uh, to be here. And honestly, for you to get a chance to be exposed to a gift that's a, uh, it's really affected my life and impacted my life for, for many, many years now. Um, Michael Easley, before he was in Nashville, was president CEO of Moody Bible Institute for a decade. He spent the last decade of his life as a, as a pastor here. Um, and in the meantime, if you are a young millennial type and you're looking for your next Hebrew tattoo, he can actually proofread that for you for a fee to make sure it says what you thought it meant. <laughs> I actually 100% know one person that did that, by the way, and, and Dr. Easley uh, was able to tell him what it actually said. And, um, all that to say, this morning he's going to continue our Reclaimed series with us in First Timothy. So would you guys make Dr. Michael Easley feel welcome to conduit? No one's ever introduced me with Hebrew and tattoo in the same sentence, so it's fun to be here. Um, good morning. Cindy and I have been attending uh, a few churches, kind of checking out Nashville as a consumer, which has been interesting. For 37 years, I've been either a, a pastor or, as Darren mentioned, part of, of Moody, and so uh, it's an interesting chapter of our lives. We moved out to College Grove a while back, and it's been uh, just fun to come, and we have enjoyed kind of, we've enjoyed Darren's teaching, and... Um, so I'm humbled to, to be a part of this uh, today. If you have a Bible open to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, um, Darren has been teaching about reclaiming, using that as a theme for the book and in keeping with that theme. Uh, 1 Timothy, I want to look at two verbs basically for the whole message and to think about not only reclaiming our lives, but very specifically the right content and the right conduct. The right content and the right conduct. If you go to chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verse 11, if you have a real Bible, turn there. If you have a cheater one, click your way there. 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. Uh, first of all, how many of you are BSF precept uh, Bible study nerds? Any, anybody out there besides me? You like to really dig in? Uh, I, try, I try to be not too grammatically boring, but one of the questions when you read this is what are the these things that uh, Paul is writing to? Here's this elder statesman, apostle, church planter who has uh, mentored this young Timothy, and they've planted all these churches around Southeast Asia. If you remember Acts 1.8, it was Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the world. Literally, would it not have been God calling and using Paul to take the message out of Jerusalem? Uh, we don't know what the future would have been. Obviously, God was going to do what he wanted to do, and he chose Paul, Saul, and then Paul to do this. Uh, you may remember the storyline. Um, Paul is, of course, Saul. He's chosen by God. He's struck blind. And uh, during the persecution of the church, when they stone Stephen to death, all this is culminating, and after the murder of Stephen, the church is diaspora'o, it's scattered out of Jerusalem because they weren't leaving Jerusalem. They weren't doing what God had told, what Christ had told them to do at the Upper Room Discourse and at the uh, Feast of Pentecost. They were staying there. He said, no, go, take the church out. So Paul is the agency who takes the church out. And you know those, those maps in the back of your Bible, if you have a real Bible, those maps back there, you look at Paul's journeys, he's the one that went out for months at a time, years at a time, and took the gospel to these foreign places. Literally, we're Acts you know, 49 or 50 or 52. We're the continuation of what Paul did. So he's writing these pastoral epistles 
to primarily here Timothy, of course, and he's writing to say, look, this is what you need to do for God's church. And you as conduit have been talking about reclaiming your finances, reclaiming your marriage, reclaiming your time, reclaiming the illustration of the table, the idea. It's, it's a good recalibration to recalibrate where you are. And I think these verbs in this passage will cement all along what Darren's been saying and, of course, what Paul has told Timothy. Uh, these things, I think, goes back to the prior verses in chapter, six, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 to 10. Some think it's a little different section, but what he's saying is the discipline I've told you about, the instruction I've given you, you continue to prescribe and teach those things. Prescribe is the first verb I want to chat about, and it's a command or a charge to give an order. It's, it's not the same as an admiral telling a captain or a general telling a lieutenant colonel. It's not a command like, you will go do this, but it's closer to that than a suggestion. A lot more force and weight behind this word, prescribe something. Years ago, I was on a small team that went to, to do some pastor training in a country that's a sensitive country where you can't talk about your Christianity unless you're very careful. And it's not only for your own protection, which you could be jailed for, but the people that you're influencing could be imprisoned because they're associating with you. So as we were having our training before we were going over there, the, the gentleman leading the group said, look, there are going to be times we're going to do something that's not on schedule, that's off point, or may seem unusual. And I'm going to tell you something right now. Obey, don't think. Obey, don't think. So fast forward, we travel 72 hours to get to some place, and we're over there, and something's going you know, differently. And I go up to, hey, why are we doing this? What? You know, I kind of give him a little grief, as it were. And he looked at me, he goes, Michael, obey, don't think. And it was instructive because I didn't know what was going on in the context. This wasn't a matter of discussion and debate at this point. This was, we're, we're, we're probably being watched right now. There may be another Christian here who's in jeopardy because these Westerners are around him. Uh, so obey, don't think. Interesting, as we become sophisticated in our Western mindset of Christianity, we overthink everything. And sometimes we just need to obey. If the word is clear, the message is straightforward, it doesn't take us to Jesus, it doesn't take Greek or Hebrew or theology, it's just reading the text that says something, we need to believe it. Sometimes you don't need to think. You just need to obey. Prescribe and teach. Teach is the word didaske. It's the word we get didactic from in the English language. Pauline literature is typically line by line. He talks about theology and then practical things. If you think of a narrative, reading the story of Samuel or, or David, you're reading a narrative that might have teaching, but more we're learning from a storyline than we're gleaning teaching. So when Paul writes, it's, a, it's like an instructive letter, right? It's very simple to see the difference. Paul says, prescribe, give orders, give charge, and teach these things. The, the language, not to bore you with too much grammar again, the word is probably causal, meaning cause them to learn. Prescribe and cause them to learn. Did your grandmother or grandfather or someone say, I'm going to learn you, boy? I'm going to learn you, girl? That's causal. I'm going to learn you a lesson. I'm going to get the belt and learn you something. So that's the idea. Prescribe and learn them a lesson. When you think about the word teaching, it's so prevalent in the Bible, it's like white noise. Um, the word used in Jesus' ministry, there's a, a multi-volume dictionary by all these highbrow Germans uh, called Kittel. And in this hundreds of pages of, of the word usage, he writes this about the Gospels alone, about this word didaske. According to the unanimous witness of the Gospel writers, didaskein 
was one of the most prominent functions of Jesus' ministry. In other words, if you look what Jesus did for the three years of public ministry, what he was always doing, he was going about teaching. Now you bring that into a Pauline writing. When Paul's writing these, these pastoral letters uh, to different churches, and whether it's Ephesus or Corinth or uh, Philemon, the story of the slave, whatever he's writing, he's teaching. Listen to just what we're re- seeing in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Don't just hear the phrases. Don't try to turn around, uh, chase them around. In 1 Timothy 3, 2, an overseer must be able to teach. In chapter 5, verse 7, prescribe these things as well. In chapter 6, verse 2, teach and preach these principles. Chapter 6, 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world. In chapter 2, uh, 2 Timothy, chapter 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach them to others also. And finally, 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all and able to teach. So I'm harping on this simple thing. These two verbs, prescribe, it's, it's important, it's a command, it's something you need to order and learn them. Take these things and help people understand in the local church, Timothy, and the churches we planted, you need to come back and prescribe and teach these things that I handed to you. Now, some think that Timothy was kind of slacking off. He was, uh, some believe he was, wasn't using his gift not to go down that vein, but the apostle elder statesman is reminding him, this is what we're doing. So much of Western Christianity has moved into the horizontal. Um, I, I call it horizontal Christianity. It's I, me, my. My passions, my desires, my, my vision, my, you know, my home, my children, my marriage, my, my, my. All that's important. My farm, my chickens, it's all my, my, my. The problem with that is we get off axis and we forget about the vertical is his. When we teach, we're teaching not just information, we're teaching the counsel of God. Darren does a fabulous job of bringing uh, the cultural context to light. He does a far better job than I could ever do reminding you of the culture, the frog in the kettle that you're in. I use the phrase, don't let the world teach you theology. Uh, Darren uses all the pyrotechnics to show you that every weekend. Um, about the best I can do is flannel graph, and I couldn't find mine this morning, so <laughs> you're stuck with just verbal. Almost 37 years of doing this, it's rare to find a church that opens the Bible and explains it. That's, that's, it's, it's very sorry. It's very sad to say. So uh, the, the, the job that you have a conduit, and as Becca talked about children, um, you're to prescribe and teach these things. Not how to be a better friend. Not how to be happy in Jesus. Not how to find your passion and vision and mission. All those things are fine and well and good. But if you've got them 52 weeks a year, let's just be honest, you've got them about 40 weeks a year, what are you going to teach them? in student ministries and children's ministries. What are you going to teach in your small group? We're to teach the words of faith and sound doctrine. If God gives you an opportunity to teach, teach the Scripture. You can be creative about it. You can do it in all sorts of interesting ways. But use the time He's given you. Sunday school, discipleship class, whatever it is you're doing. um, This is the very Word of God. It's unlike any other book on the planet. It's otherworldly. If you're a sci-fi fan, this book is from another place, another dimension. And it was incarnate in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He spoke, he didn't falter, and you and I are to obey, 
Not always overthink it. Just sometimes prescribe and teach these things. Well, the second part, this is the right content. What are we going to teach? We're going to teach the word that Paul taught Timothy, that Timothy teaches us. And secondly, verse 12, the right personal conduct. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. So we got the right content. Now we're talking about our conduct. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. Timothy's probably 30 to 40 years of age. The term youth in the New Testament can cover a wider gambit. Uh, my dad always said anybody under 65 was a young fella. Uh, I'm 60. It doesn't feel young anymore. But when you look at people 70, 80, 90, I'm a young fella. And when you're in your 70s, 80, 90, you look, you know, it just changes. 40 is a relative term. Someone wrote 40 is old for a single man. Young for a grandfather, and very young for a president. So it's a young term, it's an old term, it's a complicated term. So what he's telling him, the older elder statesman Apostle Paul is saying, don't let them look down on your youthfulness. You know, one of the problems we have in our culture, and it has seeped into the church, is the old, the young and the old tension. The young discount the old, the old dismiss the young, and too much is lost in the middle. We do not appreciate those who are older, and we do not understand those who are younger. We used to talk about a generation gap. I don't know what the term would be today. It's a generation chasm. Hollywood is driven by 20-year-old writers. And the actors and actresses you see on screen and stage are in their 20s and 30s. I mean, if you're Harrison Ford, you're a dinosaur. <laughs> you know, small parts, you know. It's, it's a worship of, of young and youth. Same with the music industry. It's youth. It's challenging for a younger person to go in and work among elderly people and vice versa. It's a hard thing. Um, Paul tells Timothy to fortify his reputation. He's going to give him five specific ways to measure this. Speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Same with me. Speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. One more time. Speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Let's look at these uh, one at a time. We could sum them up to say, this is how you make yourself respectable, Timothy. And whether you're 80 or a teenager, these apply. In your speech, what you say, that's all it is. Simple. Don't have to know Greek. Your speech is what you say. What comes out of your mouth? Do you understand the words coming out of my mouth? <laughs> Early, uh, one of the church, first churches I served, I was 28 years old, and um, we did some of these 360 tests, you know, where you have people evaluate you. And one of the elders told me I was flippant. And I want to say, what do you mean I'm flippant? Yeah. Yeah. Restrain yourself. Um, you're, I t I've taken so many personality tests, I have no idea who I am. <laughs> I took one some time ago, and I asked the facilitator, okay, distill this down, give me like the mantra, you know, based on this analysis of your, you know, whatever it is. And he, he, he looked up and he said, I'll give you one word. I said, that's what I want. He said, pause. Because people who are verbal processors, people who talk a lot, say too much. Whenever I'm around a person that talks more than me, it makes me feel miserable. Because I go, gosh, do I talk that much? What you say? What you say? And you don't, Michael, pause. If you're a verbal processor, be careful. In your speech, what you say. In your conduct, what you do. Everything you do, people see. We don't realize this, but pe people have great peripheral vision. They can pretend they're not looking at you, but they see everything you do. Especially if you're a mom. 
Moms have extra peripheral vision. They see everything we do. Um, for years, I'm, I'm a little bit OCD, and um, when I go into uh, like the restroom between services at a church, let's say, uh, after I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take paper towels, I'll clean everything up, pick the paper up for, I push the push the trash down, kind of tidy up, you know. And it's not because I'm like a super great guy or anything. I just it drives me crazy, and it takes me. 90 seconds at most to clean it up and tidy things up and put it back where it's a little more respectable because otherwise it's disgusting for people that come in there, right? So as the pastor, all these years, people come in, oh, you're the janitor too, ha, ha, ha. You're a bright guy, you know. <laughs> so I say, you know, I see you do that all the time. I go, well, why don't you do it, you know? As a, <laughs> they see everything you do. You walk across the parking lot, you pick up trash, they see what you do. You walk in here without holding your husband or wife's hand, they see what you do. When you have nonverbal cues between a marriage, as you walk out the door, people see it. And your speech, what you say, and your conduct, what you do, very simple thing. Hebrews 13, 18 is one of those verses that drives me crazy. The author says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience. Stop right there. We're sure we have a good conscience. I'm toast. Maybe you have a good conscience. I don't ever really know that. Pray for us, for we are sure we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Same word, conducting ourselves honorably in everything you do. If people were to see it, would they say, they're doing a good job of that. They're doing it the right way, doing it with integrity. Your speech, what you say, conduct, what you do. Third, your love, what you show. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were, what? Yet sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest demonstration of love of all time was that Christ died in our place on our behalf instead of us before we even knew him. Love is what we show. Love is what we demonstrate to other people. It's easy to love the lovely. It's easy to love people in our circles here, and we have dinner in each other's house, and our kids hang out together, and maybe we are in a homeschool tutorial, public school, sports, whatever. It's easy to love those who love us. It's really hard to love the unlovely. We have... uh, as I mentioned, Cindy and I have been coming on and off a few weeks now, and you showed the Place of Hope video that one morning, and I was blown away because you're loving the unlovely. You're loving people that have hard, had hard times. That's not that we're better or they're less. It's just some people are unlovely. And we know the admonition is easy to love the lovely. It's harder to love those that are difficult. And your speech, conduct, love, faith is the fourth one. Your faith is what you believe. If your speech is what you say, your conduct is what you do, your love is what you show, your faith is what you believe. What do you trust? I always do this when I refer to Hebrews. Faith is confident, assurance of things hoped for, with the conviction of things not yet seen. I believe something I can't quite see. It's a very simple metaphor. Confident assurance of things I hope for, the conviction of something I can't see. Your faith is what you believe. That doesn't mean in life it always works out well. It's when the trials happen, do I believe? Right. I, I live in this crazy mixed up world that when my marriage is fine, my health is fine, my kids are fine, my sons-in-law are fine, my grandchildren are fine, when everything's hunky-dory, I don't need God. That's my Western view of Christianity. God's blessed me. Relationships are fine. But when you touch my relationships, you touch my marriage, you touch my health, you touch one of my kids, grandkids, you touch my work, you touch something that I don't like, then I get busy with prayer. 
and they get busy on social media. Would you pray for me? I'm going in to have an MRI. You see, where's the baseline of faith no matter my experience? Your experience and mine are bad teachers. My faith and my confidence in his word is the good teacher. In your speech, what you say, conduct what you do, love what you show, faith what you believe, finally purity what you intend, what you intend. This is the word hagnia, agnia, and agnia is brought into English hygiene. Your purity here is your hygiene. He's not talking about flossing. He's talking about your mental purity. Um, you know, English is a funny language. We think English makes such great sense. English is English brings words in from all sorts of other languages. It's like the hardest language on the planet, except maybe a tonal language, like a Semitic language. Um, but um, agnia becoming hygiene, uh, we think about that in different ways. We live in a world of technology that has opened pornography and immorality in unprecedented ways. And so the challenge is, how do we have a good spiritual mental hygiene when anything we want to see, we can see in a, a moment of seconds in all of its forms. I keep a list in the front of my Bible of 30 things that would happen to me if I lost my integrity. It started years ago when I was studying Psalm 101 where David says, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will sit in a worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those that fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. Where's the place you're best known? At home. Where's the place you can get away with murder? At home. Let me take it one notch further. It's not just what you do in the privacy of your own home. It's what you do in the privacy of your mind. Because coddling the thoughts is where the hygiene begins. What do we go to sleep with? What do we wanderlust about? What do we what if about? One of the things, the unintended consequences of social media are people that reconnect after many, many years with their high school sweetheart or, or guy. And they end up having affairs with these people that they knew 10, 20, 15, 30 years ago. And it's like, you would have never known where they lived if you hadn't been you know, spending so much time on social media. You would have never had the temptation had it not been there. I wonder what if I'd have married him or her. I hadn't done this or that. Purity is what your intentions are. The front of my Bible is 30 things that would happen to me if I lost my integrity. The back of my Bible is a list of 48 and counting of people that lost their integrity. I don't share it. It's not for public consumption. It's to remind me. We're all about two weeks this side of spiritual bankruptcy. I'm not any better than the people in the back of my Bible. Not any better at all. And I use the illustration, this is what happens if I lose my integrity, these people that lost their integrity, well, this is life in between. If I keep my nose in the book, maybe I got a chance. Amen. And God's great grace to finish well. Your speech, what you say, conduct, what you do, love, what you show, faith, what you believe, and your purity, what you intend. Say it again with me. In your speech... Conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example. One more time. In your speech, your conduct, show yourself an example. Speech, what you say. Conduct, what you do. Love, what you show. Faith, what you believe. Purity, what you intend. Back to purity for just a second. Um, are you careful with your eye contact? If people see everything we do, they also see what we look at. Years and years ago, um, in early in ministry, someone had counseled me, Michael, always be sure you're looking at a woman's eyes. Yeah. 
when you're talking to her. And I would say the same for you ladies. Are you looking at his eyes? Because people see. It's a discipline. But it's also our hygiene. What's our intention? What are we doing when we look? In this culture right now, with all the craziness, Me Too, and all the other things we're facing, um, believers ought to be head and shoulders above the rest with a good moral hygiene, a good pure hygiene. Show yourself an example of those who believe, he continues. The word here, example, is two posts, used about 15 times in your New Testament. Now, some of you used to have, remember the old real typewriters with a platen and da, 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 da. how many know what that is? Okay, just because things are changing. When you type, they call it a typeface. Uh, you didn't have options for fonts until, of course, we had new technology with dot matrix and laser printers. Of course, we have 18,000 fonts on our computer. We used to. Uh, but you have all these typefaces. The word type really means the mark or the strike left behind, not the typeface. So the typing was when it hit the ribbon and the, the piece of paper and bounced off the platen. The mark left behind is the type. So that reverse E looks like a regular E when it hits the platen every single time. It leaves a mark. It looks like what it is. The same word is used for the imprints of the nails on Jesus' hands in John 20, 25. The mark left behind was the point, not the nail, the mark left behind. So Paul is saying in your speech kind of glove, show yourself an example. You look like that. You look like a person of careful speech, proper conduct, Good love, Christian love, good faith, and good hygiene, good purity. Paul told Timothy, you need to be an example. He continues in this, we're going to jump down a few verses to verse 15. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them. you got to work hard at it. Uh, it doesn't come easy. Take pains to give great care. Men and women who have music gifts, I can't read any music on a piece of paper. Some of you can read, you can read you know, theory and the whole nine yards. Some can read charts. I can't read any of it. I can read a little bit of language. So what? I can't do this. I certainly can't read it and listen to a click and do something with an instrument at the same time when all this cacophony is going on and they can do it without. Now, they work hard at it. They took lessons when they were young. Yes, they may have an ear for it. Engineers, scientists, those in the medical profession. You and I, we have bents in, in, in inclinations, but you have to work hard at it to be good at it. If you watch Chet Atkins or Vince Gill or somebody you like, they're on autopilot. They've got no music in front of them. They've got nothing going on. It's just there because they've been doing it for years. Certainly they have a gifting before they begin, right? But then they accentuate that gifting, and it's just it's like watching someone backstream. I watch a person with an Excel chart on their computer just burning through those fields and go, well, how did you get from that field to that field? Slow down. I know how to do this. Some of you who work Pro Tools. I have a friend that works Pro Tools like I work a word processor. He doesn't even think about it. He can almost see uh, the words based on what he's looking at on the Pro Tools screen. We're gifted differently, but people took pains to learn over time to get there. Paul's telling Timothy, take pains with these things so you'll be an example. Dia Mahibra says, be wrapped up in them. What are you wrapped up in? You're wrapped up in golf? You're wrapped up in cooking? You're wrapped up in homeschooling? You're wrapped up in raising chickens? What's the thing with chickens in Tennessee? Everybody's got to have chickens in our yard. Like, yeah, you go to the grocery store, they're eggs for a dollar. What's the big deal? You know, 
Yeah, those are bad for you. Okay, they're bad for me. I'll just buy them at the store. You can raise chickens. We get absorbed in the most crazy things. And we, it's like a hole. We go down the hole. Paul says, take pains with these things, speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, to show yourself an example of those things. Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching, he continues. Persevere, remain on. The idea is that we have these five simple marks. If we're going to reclaim who we are, what we are, what we're doing, let me leave you with two lessons on these. The first one is to ask you, would anyone consider you an example? That may be a little uncomfortable of a question to ask you. Would anyone consider you to be an example? A type in your marriage, in your family, in the way you handle your money, in your Christian walk, in your growth. You're not perfect, but that's what that person's growing. When the first church I ever served, I've been involved with about five different churches at different levels, and they all have different ways of selecting leaders or elders, and everybody has to reinvent the wheel. Uh, but we go through this big, long process. We vet people. We have little questionnaires. We have people interview them. We might even go to their workplace and see, you know, how is David at his job? What's he like over there? And then we come back, and then we have to decide, okay, we're going to nominate these people, and the church is going to vote on them, whatever the church's polity is. And I would always give this last soliloquy before we would make a new batch of elders. And I would say, when we make these men elders, we're stamping the word example on their forehead and sending them into the congregation to say, they're not perfect, but if you want a good marriage, do it like he and his wife do. If you want to raise kids, do it like he and his, his wife have done. If, if you want to be good in business, he's a good guy for business practices. You fill in the blank. You just stamp the word example on that guy's head. Uh, I think it was Fred Smith that said, the time to fire someone is before you hire them. Don't put that word, don't, that's why Paul says, don't make a novice a leader. Because they don't know what they don't know yet, and you're going to get in trouble. It's going to backfire. So be very careful when you make these people elders, because you stamped a, be like them. That's pretty chilling if you say, okay, uh, you're going to be an elder, and um, we're going to tell all the people in the church, if you live like they live, you're being a good Christian. Yikes. Yikes. Let's turn the heat up. We're not talking about elders. We're talking about you and me. Are you an example? In your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, are you an example to other people? And look at your life and say, yeah. It's interesting how we hang around people that we respect. Um, I want to be a good father. I'm going to hang around other good fathers. right? I want to be a good grandfather. I'm going to hang around other good grandfathers. I'm going to look. I want a good marriage. I'm going to look at other couples that have a good marriage. We do this sort of intuitively, but I think we still have to continue working at it all the time. Um, would anyone consider you an example? When we think about Paul's instruction to Timothy with the age differential for the young Timothy and the older men and women, it, it's got great application for our own culture, the way we treat elderly and the way we view our young people. There's a lot of disrespect that goes both ways. We look at a, you know, not to be indelicate, look at someone that wears a man bun, and if you're an old guy like him, you go, what's up with a man bun? I mean, come on, what's up with a man bun? That's really insulting to a person's man bun, right? That's an old guy. And the way around, when a young hipster looks at an old guy, I go, man, that guy's an old relic. He's, a, he's out of it. He doesn't, know, he doesn't know anything. Now, we need to be examples to the flock, both ways. There needs to be respect for that teenager and respect for that older person. When we were uh, raising teens, they're all grown and gone, bless God. Uh, 
empty nest, empty nest. Grandparenting, yeah, sorry. Um, uh, I want the bumper sticker that says, have grandchildren first. But when you're dealing with older people, um, to understand what value they have, ask questions. What'd you learn? Tell me your story. When you're dealing with a teenager that's in a very different world than when you and I were teenagers, how do we relate to them as examples to understand where they are? It's hard to understand a teenager at any level. Their brains aren't quite developed. They're not. You're growing. You're learning. And expensive rates are not quite there yet. Um, I told the story in the earlier service about when I would come home and my two younger teenagers would be completely, I didn't exist. I would come in the house and nobody said hello. This is why people buy dogs, I think. They want something to greet them when they come home. I'm convinced that's what it is. So I, I go home and my two teenagers, the older ones were gone and they're, they're just, you know, appendages on the couch, you know. Hi, dad's home. You know, they didn't say Hello. And my fantasy would always be for my teen- teenagers to come and say, Oh, father of mine, you've come home from working for our family. Thank you for providing my couch to lay on, my cable TV, my computer, my tennis shoes, my life, my bed, my food. Thank you for all you've done. My father, what can I do for you to make your day easier? Can I get your paper? Can I bring you some iced tea? What can I do for you? Oh, let me take your briefcase, oh, father of mine. That's that's uh, That's porn for parents of teenagers. <laughs> but somehow I got to respect them. And somehow they got to respect me. And we got to be examples to the flock. You know, it's easier to parent somebody else's kid than your own. That's why student ministries exists. Um, so we want to be careful there. But I'm going to ask the teenager and the senior in the room, are you an example? In your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, are you an example? The second part of this is, he says, take pains with these things so your progress will be evident. So the second question is, is your progress evident? Can people see you growing? Do they see you changing? Do they see you maturing in the faith? Um, back to that first elder that called me flippant, that haunted me for many years that I was flippant. And learning to pause. People may not even notice that I'm less flippant. Um, I've heard Darren talk a lot about keto in the last few weeks, and Cindy and I are doing a keto thing as well, and I've lost about 10, 12 pounds, and last week uh, my physician was with me, and he said, oh, you're looking good. And I said, well, what else is new? I mean, you know. Oh, 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 you mean uh, you can tell I've lost weight? And he goes, yeah, I can see it in your neck. And I went, my neck? (laughs) Who looks at my neck, for goodness sake? Um, But he saw progress. That was pretty cool. How much more important our spiritual life? You know, I I find you less patient, more, more patient now. I find you pause. I find you kinder to your dad. I find you don't snip at me. I find that sarcasm is kind of sloughing away. I find that you're trying. In your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example. One more time, say it with me. In your speech, conduct, love, faith, 
impurity. Show yourself your speech, what you say, conduct, what you do, love, what you show, faith, what you believe, your purity, what you intend. One last time, in your speech, conduct, love, faith, impurity. Are you an example? Are you an example? And is your progress evident? None of us gets there, or none of us arrive. Is your progress evident to all? Father, thanks for these men and women. Thanks for your church that you died for. Help us to be men and women who grow in Christ and become more like you and less like ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you brought a to-go box because this is some good stuff for us to take home and chew on all week. Uh, Thanks, Michael, and I think Cindy's here somewhere for, yeah. That was a blessing. You guys go and uh, be an example this week, exactly what the Word taught us to be. Be blessed.